sometimes you don't balance it and you just kill yourself. I mean, when I had to lead the layoffs at Airbnb or even the Nomad program that we came up, I, you know, I there was a period where I slept for 40 minutes a night for a week and probably a couple hours for the weeks before that. And that was not bite-sizing it, but we didn't have a choice. We couldn't bite-size some something as big as that. So sometimes you can try to bite-size it. Sometimes you don't. You just get through it. And for me, my philosophy is a little bit of um, the harder it is, meaning the more pain you go through, the more reward and, and fruition on the other end for me personally. So it's like if I have not slept and, and really, really spent hours trying to do the layoffs, for example, at Airbnb in a unique way because we were first in line, for lack of better words, in the pandemic in terms of our business getting hit so hard, the way we ended up doing it, I truly believe, had an impact on layoffs in general. So that was that was like my reward of fruition. So, you know, some would say, I like my wife would say I'm crazy, but I say I love it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. I'm so excited for today's episode with Q Hamarani. Q started his career in consulting before being an HR leader at JLL. He then, interestingly enough, went to Airbnb during their period of hyper growth, where he led the people operations function, and then also spearheaded their remote first environment. He's now the chief people officer at Paper. So I've known Q for, I think, about five years now um, during his stint at Airbnb and He's just always been really refreshing, Nolan. I mean, he, he's been in consulting and finance transformation and operations, then into HR. So he's kind of just this enigma of a leader. The things that he does, it's all over the place, which is great. And he takes that all into the people role. And we heard that with his love of AI and kind of how he's leaning into that very hard. Yeah, I think our audience is going to love his curiosity around AI, specifically with people ops and AI. A lot of the folks in my network have been asking, like, how does this apply to people and HR? And Q's actually one of the foremost thinkers on that. He started a community. There's now more than 300 people in that community. And so we had a, a deep conversation around that. We also talked about yeah. uh, the layoff at Airbnb and how to run layoffs the right way. And we also talked about, like, before the layoff at Airbnb, how Q spearheaded the everyone can work remotely. Uh, at Airbnb during the the COVID pandemic and his role in that. You know, it's easy to say that remote work, work anywhere, but how they literally put hours and hours and hours into making that work for that size of an organization. It was, it was really cool. I mean, he, he, he's just so good at demystifying things that are high level AI and HR remote work. And we were able to peel back. Yeah. But like, how, how does it work? He's real is the way I would describe Q. So he's not going to, he didn't tell us the answers I wanted to hear. Uh, His answers were more like, yeah, it took a shit ton of work. Uh, It took working weekends for like a month straight. And then we made it happen. One of my bigger takeaways from Q is how a people team needs to operate, which is staying ahead of the business. And oftentimes that is the grimy, slimy, hard work that no one actually sees or feels except for the people on the people team. Yeah. 
I, I love that about Q. It's not all duckies and horsies and hearts and hugs. I mean, he's like, it's freaking hard. He's yeah. coming off, from an ops background, and sometimes you just got to grind through it and, and be honest about what it's like. Yeah. I also think he's going to be the archetype for the future HR leader. He does not come from HR. He is not like born and raised in HR. He comes from consulting. And so I think we're going to see a lot more Q types moving forward. Totally. Uh, with that said, I just can't wait for our audience to hear this show. And so without further ado, here's Q. Q Hermani, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It's been a little while. So, so Q, your background is fascinating. Uh, you were a consultant. You were then at Airbnb through like the craziest phase of Airbnb's growth. And now you're the chief people officer at Paper. Just give the audience a quick background on your career and what you've been up to so far and specifically your areas of expertise. Yeah, so I think it's uh, to to give that context, I'll go a little bit further back just to give a holistic view. Um, I studied electrical engineering in college. I then minored in German because I was like, why not do something different, completely different? Did a study abroad in Germany, and that was fun too. Um, and then I started off my career in finance because why not? You know, it would it would be too easy if you just went into engineering. And I did finance for about five years, finance strategy and ops, and then I did some global strategy and ops because I always liked connecting the dots. I didn't like to be in one discipline. And then I, over that duration of first seven years of doing a lot of consulting and finance, I realized like people can make or break the best process or the best technology you have. Like pe- that was my learning. So then I said, okay, I've never, never worked in the people function. So I should go explore that because every right turn seems like the best thing to do. Um, so I tried to get jobs in HR and I got flat out rejected. So long story short, I quit. I started my own consulting company, which was in HR technology and analytics. This is back in 2009. I started, I knew PeopleSoft from my finance days. So I started doing workday implementations in 2009. And that's how my career in HR quickly started with technology, blew into operations. And then basically all my non-HR experience kept becoming more valuable than my HR experience. And uh, I was at uh, a PE-backed firm for four years where I basically it was my HR academy. I did every role in HR there because it was small from HR BP to recruiting. Um, went to JLL for a year and did large-scale HR. And then I landed at Airbnb for the last five years. And now I'm at Paper. And Paper is an education technology company. It's not a brand. It's definitely not as uh, front and center like Airbnb. So our mission is... We have a learning platform that only plugs into public school districts in the U.S. with a mission to reduce the inequality gaps in learning that public schools face from private schools. So I'm the chief people officer here. The company had grown from a couple hundred to a couple thousand in 18 months. I also expanded my role a few months in into uh, communications. I took in, took on internal communications my week two because that was my learning. Like if you can control or have a thoughtful internal communication strategy, your people work gets that much easier. And now I also run public relations and external comms because your external message needs to tie into your internal message. So here I am seven months into my new role. Uh, I think the engineer in me that has still stuck is like, go do shit that you've never done before and just figure it out. You'll fail, you'll fall, you'll learn. But if you don't learn, it's kind of boring, um, at least from my perspective. Hugh, I'm wondering how the how the engineer in you handled that early rejection when you decided to go into HR. It's usually people want to get out and you're trying to get in. I'd love any any hot takes on those rejections or how that happened. I mean, the rejections were, were real, but I think in a lot of ways they fueled me. Because when someone tells me you can't do something or it's not possible, that's enough to fire me up. 
like that is what i need so it it kind of fed my ambition in a reverse way where i was like i want to prove people wrong and i want to and part of the reason i was so insistent on doing this was twofold one was i had not done it before and i was like um i want to do it but the more uh, broader thinking was i can actually impact change in a in a lot more scalable way if i go into the people function because i'm helping the whole organization and i guess coupled with frustration because i was always like pissed off a bit like i was not getting the right partnership from my hr partner either they were not understanding my discipline enough and they were leading with um the pro hr programs that i felt like maybe i could try and drive some change obviously timing is everything and you can't control it but i think in that 20 2010 2011 time this is pre employee experience as a term um you know i think i caught the wave of where people leaders at the time and organizations were looking for um uh, hr professionals to be more business oriented to understand and treat hr just like you would treat a product or any other thing in your organization not a back office function so i think it was the right place right time right ambition right rejection i think that that moment's actually still going on that's true yeah a lot a lot of founders and CEOs are asking for chief people officers to come from a business background i'm seeing actually a lot of people transition over from like the strategy and ops side into a chief people officer job you kind of have done that just over a longer duration i'm curious how that's helped inform how you make decisions now at paper as the chief people officer So I think it it all has come together. So when I when I look at what we are trying to solve for from a people standpoint, I don't lead with the people program. Or I don't even lead with like what is the right HR way to do it or what what is the people way to do it. I normally lead with what are we trying to solve for the business. So it could be I'm deeply immersed with our sales and customer facing team and trying to find out you know it could an example of a story which is real could be like we need new comp plans we need new incentive plans for sales and customer teams and it's like why okay we need it because we need to incentivize more i would peel that onion and try to go all the way upstream to like what are we trying to solve like is it our pricing model what behaviors are we trying what behaviors do we not want to solve you may not want to sell deals that are low margin or you may if your strategy you know is to get into a market share that you're not but you have to start with like what are you trying to solve what behaviors and then the actual creating of the comp plans is the last 20% that's easy to do but you know historically or even in my own past when i when i worked through it like a decade ago it would start with comp plans and then like try to marry it up so i think for me it's it's just given me something that even at airbnb for 5 years honestly like the programs i ended up create incubate i incubated a lot of different programs in hr that basically um hr no one was doing in the company and i just put my hand up to do and with the pandemic i would say the silver lining was there was a lot that got thrown on hr's plate that hr had never done before so it's the same process i use a lot of design thinking you know i try to empathize with different personas define what problem we're trying to solve and then kind of work my way what i call it um what i've called it over the years is just i want to iterate towards greatness so let's just figure it out so so to your point it's really all that non hr experience um that i've gathered over the years is actually coming to fruition now in a pretty fun and exciting way. Hugh, how do you balance the design thinking and the the love for iteration, which I do as well, with too much change and fatigue and right that that dynamic. I mean it's it's you you try to like bite size it sometimes. Um 
you know, sometimes you don't balance it and you just kill yourself. I mean, reality is real. I mean, when I had to lead the layoffs at Airbnb or even the live in the nomad program that we came up, I, you know, I, there was a period where I slept for 40 minutes a night for a week and probably a couple hours for the weeks before that. And that was not bite-sizing it, but we didn't have a choice. We couldn't bite-size some, something as big as that. So sometimes you can try to bite-size it. Sometimes you don't, you just get through it. And for me, like my, uh, my philosophy is a little bit of um, the harder it is, meaning the more pain you go through, the more reward and, and fruition on the other end for me personally. So it's like if I have not slept and, and really, really spent hours trying to do the layoffs, for example, at Airbnb in a unique way, because we were first in line, for lack of better words, in the pandemic in terms of our business getting hit so hard, the way we ended up doing it, I truly believe had an impact on layoffs in general. Um, so that was that was like my reward of fruition. So for me, it's like sometimes I don't balance it well, and that's my weakness. And but but on the other end, it satisfies me and keeps me going to do it the next time. So you know, some would say I like my wife would say I'm crazy, but I say I love it. So I I think that's refreshing. Like everyone's right strides for the balance, Nolan and Q. And sometimes it's just like you, you can't. You're just gonna you know get laid out for a while. I think it's a fallacy, Kelly. I, I think it's a fallacy. I think like, you know, work-life balance, like we got really comfortable over the course of the last 10, 10 or 11 years. It turns out building a tech company is really fucking hard. And, you know, this notion that you can go do it with 40 hours a week and, you know, still be a millionaire at the IPO, I, I think is is gone. And I think that that's generally a good thing because like we need to work hard in order to achieve outsized outcomes. And Q, I think like, you know, Airbnb has obviously like insane product market fit. But I'm curious actually on this topic, going from Airbnb to paper, which has a much smaller brand, what has that been like for you? So it's been humbling because um, I did know going into it that I was A, going into a sector that was not as glamorous, right? Like education in the public sector is not like travel and hospitality. And B, it was not an Airbnb. There's no better way to say that, right? The brand was uh, was not um, already there. Um, it's been it's been tough, but it's it's been that's the the challenge that I was looking for, right? Like for me, I think I ground in and you know before I took the job at Paper, I probably spoke to thirty or forty companies over one year because I was very particular on where I wanted to go next. And for me, the grounding commonality was I wanted to be somewhere where the mission was really strong and relatable because we all have shit days. We all have crazy days, especially in this profession. It's a pretty lonely job. And, you know, now I have maybe my GPT buddy to talk at at night and calm me down. But, you know, that's not, you know, I don't know how far that'll go either. But um, what what really can ground you at the end of the day, even in that I agree with you, work-life balance, I don't even think the word balance is, is, is appropriate. It's like work-life integration and you figure out how to, just like you have to balance your life on the personal front sometimes with a kid or whatnot you have to like figure shit out you figure it out on the work front um, but for me it's like at the at the end of the day when I'm like banging my head or, or frustrated it's like it's the mission it's we're trying to change the next generation of education at a time even if it's an inch it's satisfying so if for me it's the mission that's that's common in its own unique way because I related to both the missions but it's it's been humbling but I knew that coming in right like I'm giving um, I'm moving to an organization to drive my own impact and growth but also um, it comes it comes at it but that said I would say there were some there were some commonalities that I took from Airbnb and still use every day right so 
design thinking, even though I would say loosely I did it for the last decade, for the last five years at Airbnb, like that was how Airbnb operated. And that was that was with Brian's, you know, he's a designer and that's everything. It was like, what were the first principles? How are we looking at it? How are we prototyping? And that's how we approached our business, honestly. So for me, that is continued to to thread. The other thing I would say that I've continued to thread at, that I learned at Airbnb was Airbnb was the first company where communications was part of HR that I worked at. And I thought that was so impactful that I'm doing the same thing at paper now. And that intentional communication strategy, your operating system, like I referred to it on how your company, the ways of working, because paper is a remote first company, was born remote, right? So Airbnb went from being completely in person to being remote so we could figure out how to sprinkle some of the in-person. Paper is almost coming at it from a different end of the spectrum to the same side, which is they were born remote and what is that right infusion of in-person. So communication is critical is what I've learned and I've carried that forward because I think that's how you thread it in a, in, a, in today's world. Just want to be clear when when Q has shit days, he talks to Chat GPT, and I go out and have bourbon. <laughs> well, I call it, <laughs> and I, I go out and have me pill drink bourbon with me. So I think I well, you could do it's both. Not you know, you could it's you and. could you could have a bourbon with a yeah, it's, yeah. But yeah. both things can be true. Is a I mean, we're not too far from maybe a GPT making uh, making you a good cocktail too, right? <laughs> That's so true. maybe maybe you have it ready for you. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, I mean, you all challenge me on the balance, right? And I, I get a lot of questions from chief people officers or HR folks. And how do you keep the balance and how do you do this? And one of the things I, I say is do anything you can to try and get in front of the eight ball as fast as possible um, and how you set up your operating mechanisms, how you build your team. Cause I think I'd love your views on this, but one of the easiest ways to drown in these companies is not to do that. And you're taking on too much and all of a sudden you're underwater and you're not viewed as strategic or you're just burnt out either way and you're kind of screwed. So I'd love your your views on that. Yeah, I would say it's, you know, it's, I would say yes and no to your point. Like, yes, you can plan for a lot of things and you should have that foundational infrastructure, right? Like my first few weeks was like really making sure my people team had the right infrastructure. But now my job is, I would say 70, 80%, not even in the core HR space. It's really understanding the business, understanding the problems, understanding how we can do better to empower everyone through that. So, I mean, I think you can do some of it, but the reality of the job is, which is what is uh, painful, but what I love, and I'm, I'm sure all of us love, otherwise we would not even be in this line of work, is every day is a different day. You can plan for the day, at least for me, like 60, 70% of the day is what I could not have even predicted. You get used to shit getting thrown at you and you just have to figure out like, you know, which one do you dodge? Which one do you let stick for another day? Or which one do you catch and just like figure it out? Because no one's going to do it for us. That's the that's the crazy part, right? Like, it's not like, okay, we can figure out if we wait for this, you know, release or wait for something. It's it's all people related stuff. Um, so I don't know. I think it's tough, but you just deal with um, the chaos um, and you grow to like get a bit uh, used to it in a lot of ways. Yeah, speaking of... You were instrumental in running Airbnb's layoff. I think many people have been in tech, have been impacted by layoffs or have been on the the side of having, unfortunately, to lay people off. That I've been researching it recently for a presentation I'm about to do on layoffs. And it's it's amazing to me the media narrative that came out of that, which is it, this is a case study for how other companies should do layoffs. 
Brian Airbnb CEO was lauded as like this hero, even though he laid off almost 2000 people. Can you give us the story and like how that came to be? Yeah, so I think in typical Airbnb and Brian fashion, when we started planning the layoffs, you know, we had the the HR playbook, right? Like you do you do XYZ, you just give three months of Cobra and you do XYZ and you kind of just, you know, say bye-bye and you move on. And when we started looking at how we were going to do it, almost every single thing we said we were going to do, Brian's like, no, we, we need to do much better. We need to figure out how we can help the, you know, help individuals, especially because it was, a, I'll give you a tactical example. We talked about Cobra and we were like for the US, which is more US specific, as you know. And it was like three months, six months, maybe was the norm. Three months for maybe was the norm at that time. And we were like, we're in a healthcare pandemic. We got to give 12 months, like no matter what level they are, right? So we started with our first principles, which was we need to start with empathy. We'll try to balance cost because obviously this is a cost play because business was impacted. But we are going to spend um, and and do it right, and then we will kill ourselves. So in 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 kind of the context of what I said, of more pain and more gain kind of thing, um, you know, we wanted to optimize for one on one communications. We wanted to optimize for the fact that um, individuals will be in a tricky position, and we want to make sure we are there to support them. Another tactical example: I don't think any company had done this before, or I shouldn't say any because I don't know for sure, but. Um, most companies, when they have a layoff, the access is cut off at the end of that day or even sometimes when you tell them in that day. Brian was like, I don't care. They need to have access for a full week because I want everyone to say goodbyes to everyone that's leaving. This is this is relationships. And this caused angst. Like with our IT group, they were like, this is a risk. Like any any company would be like, don't do it. We ended up doing it. And that was, I think, uh, another piece. So it came about in a very... Um, in a very atypical way, because that's how we approached it. Even though it was a shitty situation, we treated it with just as much um, effort, design, um, and respect as it would be um, if we were hiring someone. And I think the key part of the layoff that I learned and I've taken with me as well is the people that were not impacted, we call them stayers or, or folks that are not being laid off, we emphasize so much on them too because you often forget that they are also impacted in in a unique way. So we had a lot of programming for them to make sure we connected with them. But you know, I just it you know it was in thirty countries, so it was tough because our layoffs literally went for about two and a half days. Right by the time you started in the U.S., then Europe, then APAC, and as you know, the reality of layoffs in Europe and APAC is the layoffs actually not done for six or seven months because you go through consultation and you got to go through. It's not as easy as the U.S. So it was, uh, you know. But I think coming back to your point, Nolan, our philosophy at Airbnb was always, and this is something that stuck with me to the extent I can, which is why I, I love the community aspect of anything, which is we want to share what we've done with the world so that they can then leverage anything we've tried to do. So Brian's open letter, which became kind of like the playbook, right, that a lot of companies have used, which lists out what we did, how we stated it out, like that hit the streets, like to the external press, literally a minute after it went out to our employees internally. And it was the same letter. Um, so I think sharing what we've learned, even with the Nomad program at Airbnb for future work, it was the same thing. We went through all these complexities like, let's share it with the world. Let everyone benefit or create their own version of what we've done. 
Um, so the open sourcing aspect of it was 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 something I love um, because you just feel that's where I think the reward and the amplification that you at least shared. And even if someone got some inspiration from something you shared, it feels like we we did something more than just for ourselves in that context. Hey, everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit Lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. Q Airbnb, your role in the live and work anywhere philosophy. And I know a lot of companies are struggling with getting folks back in now and back and forth. I mean, was that easy? I mean, just by the looks of it, it looked like it was very simple. This is what we believe in. This is it. And I know it couldn't be that. Did you have pushback on that? Was there internal debate? How did that go? Yeah, so that that live and work anywhere program was probably almost a two year ex- experiment that we went through before we came up with it. Um, so when the pandemic hit, like March of 2020, when we were all sent home, um, I think in July or August of 2020, we realized that our employees wanted to start traveling abroad. And every time an employee crosses borders, you have risks in terms of employment, as we all know. Um, and we had a choice at that point. We said we could tell employees, like, sorry, you can't go, like, just stay where you are, or we can support them. And mind you, at this point in the pandemic, it was not people were traveling for leisure. They wanted to go back to loved ones. They wanted to go back to be socially sane because in a lot of cities, they were literally locked down, right? There were curfews and stuff like that. Um, So we, in typical Airbnb fashion, said, we have no idea how we're going to do this. We know it's going to be hella complex. We know no one's doing this for a reason. So let's take it on. Let's do it because our employees need it. So I think there was a four or five day span where I incubated and stood up this team called Digital Nomad Program. It was augmented with consultants who were tax experts, privacy experts, like all the complexities you can think of. And we essentially ran this program for 15 months where employees could open a request. We would do an in-depth analysis to tell them the risks they would face cover our risks. And nine out of 10 times, they could go for about 182 days, which is the tax treaty limit in a lot of countries. And then they would come back. 
Now, Airbnb was not a remote company before the pandemic. We were in a lot. But because our offices were shut for two years from March of 2020 to April of 2022, we were all forced to be in a remote work experiment. And this includes our leaders and Brian. Right. So even though we did not have unanimous agreement on remote work, like I would think most organization on the leadership team pre-pandemic, everyone was in this experiment. And what happened was, you know, so March 2020 pandemic hits April or May 2020. The headlines is literally rest in peace, Airbnb. Uh, We had to raise a crazy amount of debt at a very low valuation. And then six months later, uh, so in December of 2020, we had an amazing IPO all remote right so the 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 argument of you can't work remotely was kind of thrown out the door because we had proof so when we when we got into early 2022 fast forwarding to 15 months into this pandemic uh, pandemic and also into the global nomad program that i referenced that we launched we realized that we had not taken a stance on what type of company we're going to be are we going to be a remote first company are we going to call people back into the office three days and we kept seeing around us that You know, companies were calling people back for three days, but then there would be a new variant and they would say, oops, sorry, like, you know, let's wait another time. And we we wanted to wait it out and see, essentially. So in Feb of 2022, we said, all right, now our employees are also, they need some direction and we need to take a stance because we can't just say like we're indefinitely going to figure it out. But we knew that the world was not going back to what it was pre-pandemic. So we put up like a very small task force for about eight weeks in kind of a design sprint kind of way. And we said, let's figure out what our holistic program is. And we started with our first principles. What are we trying to solve? Let's ideate. Let's think of personas. And basically what came out of that was the simplified view at end of April 2022 that the world saw, which was called the Live and Work Anywhere program. It had four dimensions to it. Um, One was you can work in the office or at home. We don't care. You choose. We're trusting you as adults to make the right choice because we want you to be output driven. The second one was, I think we were one of the first in tech to do this, especially in the US. Uh, we moved from um, location-based pay, pay to value-based pay. Um, so I could move from San Francisco to Iowa and my salary would be the same. Um, the third one, which was our differentiator and our focal point was that digital nomad program that became, you could live and work around the world for 90 days at a time. We streamlined it. So the overhead was a little less. So we brought it down to 90 to mitigate the risk and also be able to approve things quicker. And the fourth one was we still believe in person is critical to what we do. So we will have intentional in-person gatherings through the year to foster that, um, that thing. Now, the key point here is, we knew that you know not all four elements of that program will relate to everyone. But as long as when you map out personas and think of empathizing with different groups, at least one of them should relate to someone, right? So I just had my kid. I was not going around the world 90 days at a time, but I was not going in and I could spend morning. I do morning routines for my son every single day since that day, right? So versus someone who wants to travel, could travel. Someone could move to Florida or Iowa and they would they would be know that they have their job and they're not even giving up their pay. Um, so that's how it came about. Very similar to the layoffs in terms of how we approached it um, with the difference being we had time on our side to build a remote work program layoffs we didn't really have that but it's it's the same uh, principle how we did it that was a that was a different april of 22 is is right as things are starting to fall off of the cliff or maybe like we're already falling off the cliff and we don't quite yet know it i'm curious now looking back on that and saying okay if it's november of 23 if i was doing this again 
what would you change? And I'm asking because the thing that comes up for me is like geo-based comp, you know, making that value-based comp sounds awesome, but you no longer have salary arbitrage, which is more expensive for the business. So I'm curious, would you change anything given the circumstances of today's market? I would not, especially in that regards, because we we removed location-based pay only within your country of employment. So it wasn't global. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I should have clarified that because I was actually advising a bunch of Web3 companies at the time and they went just global one pay, right? Like they didn't care. Within. So ours was specifically within a country. So if you move to London or you move to Paris from, from San Francisco, you were getting localized. So it was just, so the, so the differential. So, you know, when you look at the tier one and tier two location based pay, what were they like? Maybe 15%. I don't know what the latest was, right? 15 to 20. Yep. Yeah, 15 to 20. And anyway, things were starting to get normalized because a lot of the locations like, I don't know, maybe Texas or Chicago or Florida, where there was an inbound of folks during the pandemic, they were starting to, I I felt like the differential was going down a little bit anyways, because of the distribution of workforce. So you're giving up like eight to 10% for productivity and, and ease of hiring talent your diversity, like you talk about like at the end of a a real data point, at the end of our one year of launching this program at Airbnb, our engagement scores were at the highest they had ever been in the eight years since we started tracking engagement, right? Our diversity scores were at the highest they had ever been in the seven years since we started tracking diversity. So for us and output, you know, uh, the whole reason we did this was we went we went uh, and did a successful IPO um, in in a remote environment. So we continue to track, like we do two semi-annual releases. Airbnb moved to that last year as we moved to a single roadmap. They were going great. We were we were coordinated. We had intentionality. So output was good. People were happy. We had an ease of hiring people. Like we would, when I was there, like we would close down job recs in a few weeks because we would get thousands of applicants from around the world. And that's a good problem to have. Um, so I think, uh, why change? Why change it is, is what I would go to. I think the biggest thing, cause I, you know, there's the whole future of work debate has ended up becoming like return to office or remote. I hope it's now going to change with like what, what is technology going to change with the whole AI revolution? It's going to come at some point or the other. Um, I think it's 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 not for everyone though, right? So I it was for Airbnb and one of the reasons why the program became so big and one of the ideas I pitched was the fact that how it is, this goes to your original question, Nolan, of like how all my other experiences are coming together is that the reason this program worked so well for us and for, for us was because it not only related to the employees, but it worked amazingly for our business. Right. And if you find that magic um, connection, that's where the magic happens. Right. So it was great. We were telling the world to go and live and work anywhere on Airbnbs. We were uniquely positioned because Airbnb had the supply of homes to host people. We had one of the number one barriers of living and working anywhere after our like 15 month global nomad program, which I refer to like my on the job PhD and tax treaties and privacy laws and all that was the number one barrier is work authorization, which is visas. Right. And we realized that we have a large public policy team that works with regulators to make sure that Airbnbs can be legalized. So we said, why don't we harness the same power to help influence visas and regulatory restrictions so that our employees can travel, the anyone in any company can let their employees travel and together they hopefully all live in the homes we have. It's like a win-win situation. So those were magic moments, actually, where we realized 
oh shit, like we have a, when I realized there was a point, like I think in March where I realized, oh shit, we have a public policy team that can break down this barrier for us. And I remember talking to our exec team and I said, look, we have a, we have a choice. We could follow what everyone's doing and just go with the flow. Or we have a unique opportunity with our business model and our workforce in terms of how we are structured with regulators and cities to drive tourism, which is kind of the other side of that coin, where we can really like lead the shit, break the barrier and help do it. And, you know, in a typical Airbnb fashion way, it's like, no shit, we got to do that. Like, that's what that's what we always do. And that's how I got the support to kind of do that. Awesome. Cue to Nolan's point, right, right before the market kind of fell off and, you know, especially the last year or so with a lot of macro issues and a lot of companies having revenue challenges. And you've, I've at least seen this, this push to get back in the office. We need that to get things back on track. And those things have been correlated. And I'm assuming that was not a problem for, for you all. No, no, it's not. No, it's, I mean, again, we, we had in-person connections. So we had to have like, if the design team was doing a sprint, they were in person maybe for a week or two. But I think, to be honest, like, and um, I think the the leaders that are saying you have to be in person to turn it around or bring back morale, I think they're just being lazy. Um, I think they want to be in their comfort zone, um, which again, it's not wrong. If I'm comfortable with something, just own it and just be like, I want to be in that zone because I believe that's what's best for me. And it's okay if I lose people in the process. Don't like try to have your cake and eat it too, right? Like that's, I think, what's going on a little bit, which kind of is annoying sometimes when you read the headlines. It's And I think the, the other thing is like, everyone thinks what they're doing is the only right way. And they're so opinionated about it that there is no other way to do it. And it, it kind of annoys, it, it's getting old and annoying. I tend to agree. We we talked we talked about a bit th- about this with Steve, right? The episode that actually launched today, um, that 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 we really don't know what the future would bring, and we should own that with AI and what you mentioned, Q. So I think there's two camps here. One camp is 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 kind of like these people who are full of shit, who are like, oh, we want to bring people back, but really, like, they just want to monitor you. I think another camp is we're pre-product market fit even though we've raised a shit ton of money and we need to actually like get this thing to work. And we believe getting this thing to work is a lot easier if people are in the office. And I think that for that, that one, I understand. And if you're cool with that, awesome. We're going to move slower on, on open recs. And I think that's the thing that like, you know, to, to Q's point, CEOs who, who want to eat their cake too. It's like, well, you know, can't we move faster on recruiting? Like, yeah, tur- turns out you can't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was talking to a founder, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and he had like 20 people, so relatively small company, um, very early stage. And he was like, I love, you know, having people in every day because we're trying to figure out what we're doing. I was like, if you're, and he was like, I think all my people like it too, because they're all trying to figure out what we are doing. I was like, then then don't fight it. Like, that is the right model for you. Come into the office. You're 20 people. If everyone loves coming in, you're whiteboarding, do it. Do it. Like, don't feel like you have to do something else just because someone else told you it's good. Like, figure out what works for you and then just own it. Um, because I think employees also, my guess is, are getting sick and tired of the stuff, right? Like, where they can read between the lines. Like, someone else I was talking to, and they were like, our CEO said everyone needs to come in four days a week or whatever it was. And they're like, none of our leadership team is ever in. They're, they're at home. So, you know, employees can see like that that level is like, you know, so I think f- leaders included get carried away 
with like, okay, Apple's doing this. It's got to be amazing because we're so used to looking up to organizations like Apple and Apple is an amazing organization. I don't mean it in a negative context, but look up to them for maybe their product and their inspiration and not everything blindly because you're then just going to copycat. It's good to have a contrarian culture, like stand for something. Don't just do the vanilla thing that everyone else is doing, but also realize you want people to opt into that culture. And it's it's amazing when they opt out. You have dodged a bullet and you don't have to deal with bullshit down the road. And so many founders get into this mode, especially during recruiting. It's like recruit at all costs. Like we've got to have this person. And you're just so much better off if that person doesn't want to be here. Like, let's just let them go. Try, try, but trying to be all things to all people, right, is, is, is that. Perfectly said, Kelly. It's hard, it's hard not to, right, when you're competing for talent, you're trying to do that. It's like, you, could, you could be the most polarizing, nope, and that perfect candidate's here. Well, maybe we'll let them work from Kansas because they're fucking great. And then it just spirals out of it. So it's, I get it. I get it. But it is, it is easier said than done. And that's where I think some of our role is, is empathizing with these founders too and yeah. working with them through it. Cause they're in a tough spot and calling their bullshit. Well, yeah. Call, that's, call, I mean, calling their bullshit with a hug. Nolan. I mean, sometimes you, yeah, you, I mean, I'm not saying punch them in the face, but like, you don't have to, you don't have to hug. Yeah, me and you are not hugging. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, you know, sometimes it's telling it raw. Like you have to like, you know, even in my current role, I, you know, love both the co-founders in the in the context of working and we we challenge each other and it's been seven months in, so we have an amazing relationship. But there were times when I was breaking in at paper where I was like, I could play soft or I could just tell them really like this was not what we should have done and be very opinionated because I believe in something and I think we could have done it. And I took those risks not knowing like, am I going to lose my job? Then fuck it, like that's fine. Um, but every time I did that, they actually wanted to hear that. And over time, they would, they've started to tell me like, Q, like, what do you think? And if I'm like, you know, not saying anything, they like, they, they would get it out of me. So I think you just got to be real, but also um, do it in a way where, you know, I think they're counting on us for that is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, that, that is, that is the job, you know, it is. It is the job, but I want to unpack that for a second because not all founders want to hear no. Actually, many founders want to just, most founders actually just want to want yes people around them how did you assess for that during your interview process so i would say before i jump to that i would be like part of it was luck right because you can never assess it completely right so part of it was i got lucky um because you just never know you can't just like they can't just like your hiring success rate is probably what 50 60 percent it's the same on the other side right <laughs> right it's no different people are people so i'm in a co-founder situation and i Try to ask them when things don't go your way, how do you react? When things don't go exactly the way you want, how do you how how do you react? How do you how do you sort out misalignments? And I have now can say with confidence after living through it every day, when when we when the two co-founders, for example, don't see eye to eye, which is which is good, because that's what the complementary nature is in in some situations, they can hash it out. And now it's three of us. We can hash it out. We can talk through it. Nine out of 10 times, we are aligned at the end of that conversation because we've heard each other out on pros and cons and where we are coming from. One out of 10 times, we don't, but we agree that, okay, this is the best gamble to take at that time. So for me, it was um, a bit of a... Um, you know, wild shot, um, a, a lottery, I would say in that regards that I got lucky, but, and then tried to, through the process, um, ask 
how do you how do you work through situations where you don't get what you want, you don't like the answer, um, and take it from there. The other thing you said, which I think is important for execs to hear, is that you 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 got to this moment in which do I say it? Or do I not say it? And then you're like, fuck it, I'm gonna say it. And if they don't like it, like they're gonna fire me. That actually, I think, is like getting to that level of clarity early is healthy. Because if you're just going to go along for the ride and live with all this angst and like, oh, I wish it could be differently, I don't. I think you're you're kind of a weak exec. But but wait, but wait, that's that. I agree. That is my viewpoint now. But I'm just thinking back to when I was 31 and my first head of people role. I I, I don't know. I mean, I was definitely a little more cautious. Maybe you're learning. Maybe you're the. But it's it's hard to do. So let's just be real about that. How how do you get there? Well, I think it's fair. Like that's exactly the framework, which is if you're in a first time exec seat, you got to be really careful about picking and choosing your battles. If you've been around the block, I think your tolerance for bullshit is very low. And so, you know, but I, I still even see people who've been around the block who deal with all of this crap and it's their own fault. And it's, it's the, it's these, it's these moments in which Am I going to actually speak my mind and speak truth in a way that's obviously like professional and understanding of the other side? Or am I just going to go along for the ride? And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people end up just going along for the ride. You know, you just, a light bulb just went on my, it doesn't happen often. A light bulb just went <laughs> off in my head and I. <laughs> oh, we succeeded. No, we succeeded. Seven episodes in. <laughs> 700 watt. And I I advise a lot of first time heads of people now. And I just realized that you said something, Nolan, you know when to pick your battles. I didn't even know what was a fucking battle and what wasn't. And that's half of it is, that's what I try to help the nuance with first time heads of people that I talk to is you might not know it, but this is actually a pretty big thing. It's a battle and, or this isn't. And that, that is, that is very helpful. It's very helpful. Yeah. I think picking your battles is, is our, it should be like number one in our job description, right? Because no matter, no matter how much you want to, you know, opinionate or fight back, you are always picking battles because you're trying to weigh out like, where's the impact on what you're picking in the people profession. But I, I do agree. But I think it's also interesting because to your point, Nolan, like some founders don't want to be challenged. Um, I got lucky, but like, what if I, I mean, not everyone is like that. So what do you do in that situation? You, you know, they're looking for someone that is not going to challenge them and, you know, to the best they represent that going in. Um, and sometimes I look at that in um, in what stage the company is in, right? Like if it's a series A, series B company and, you know, at least um, pre-cliff of the market falling or if you're in an AI boom right now, hiring is the key kind of component of that job, right? Um, and to me, like the reason I don't go that early is because I don't want to just be focused on hiring. I want to focus on actually the business. And I think... I don't know. I'm actually saying this out loud. I haven't finished my thought as I'm speaking as well, but maybe because I'm going in that slightly later stage, I'm putting myself in that business partnering role that I'm in trickier situations where it is um, like I can I can voice my opinion that's, that may be different. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, 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 pers I personally think as you get more senior, your tolerance for bullshit gets less. You know which which battles to fight in which just to like let roll and your ability to spot those things from a ways out 
is it, it can help you avoid being in like, you know, I'm battling on every single one of these things, which ruins relationships. I, I also think like time has helped us. The industry has gotten more mature. They've gotten smarter boards, founders, they're, they've wisened up the importance of this role and what it is. Uh, Have they though, across the board? I think a lot more people get it than they did before. Come on, 15 years ago, they were like, what the hell do you do? I think people outside, I think people outside get it. I don't know if people inside the industry get it as much as I would like. I, I In my conversations with founder, I feel like they're, they've, it's a different world than it was 15, 16, 17 years ago with the view, the views on HR. Everyone wants an HR, not that they don't get, everyone wants this role now. Everyone knows it's not just a compliance role anymore. And so I think the leeway and the expectation for us to have opinions and be strong, that's more expected than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. I agree too. I was, I wanted to tee that up to see what Q's facilitating us. Yeah. I actually want to talk about AI and, uh, you know, you just started a community, uh, for people GPT. I, I just want to get your sense of where do you think the puck is going for HR recruiting and people ops more broadly? Yeah, so I think I'll start off with just, you know, AI is so broad, right? Like, and I think up until last weekend, I knew AI is a great technology, but I thought it's pretty inflated. And then obviously I've been using ChatGPT over the past few months, like writing job descriptions, you name it, it's helped me in, in a lot of stuff. But what happened last weekend has changed my mindset significantly because as you may know, OpenAI launched a custom GPT builder. What that means in very simple terms is someone like you and me can just go and talk to a computer, literally speak to it, tell it, I want to build a bot to do X, Y, Z. It should act like this. It should speak like this. It should look up salary information from here. And you can, you can just very easily talk to it and it creates one for you. Now that changed my mind completely in a way where not only um, it can revolutionize the way we work. So to your point, I think, or to answer your question, I think there's two dimensions. One is it can change the field of HR internally on how we run HR. So there's things, basic things like automations um, that can be done very seamlessly now with no programming. You just talk to it and it'll do it end to end. I think then what it can start doing is... um, start helping us evaluate all the pieces we need to be a better business partner. So for example, um, one of the uh, people GPTs that I release, it's called Job Crafter. And basically what it does is I, I talk to it just like I'm talking to you probably, like just like I'm talking to a human. So that's why I keep joking. This is my, my new friend that I create. Um, and I said, I think I need help with compensation. And it'll ask me like, why do you need it? What are you trying to solve? It'll then... Uh, suggest titles for a job I may want to hire to fill that. It'll suggest reporting lines based on like the team size and all that. It will then ask me for a few questions and I'll just answer like very blatantly too, like go scrub careers to find more info about the company. Like, and it'll ask me for job qualifications. I'll be like, I don't know, you tell me. And it will create a really beautiful job description by scrubbing, getting all the information. Then I asked it, like, give me some salary data. It pulled from various sources and gave me salary data, which was pretty freaking accurate because I tested it for London, for San Francisco. Um, And then I said, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Can you just go create the rec for me in Workday? Like, I don't have time for this and I don't don't like doing it. And the bot was like, well, we're not connected to your Workday system. Here's a step-by-step aid. 
And then I learned that it, there's another tab called configure where, or actions, I can't remember, where I can actually connect Workday with an API and it'll do the rec end-to-end. So where it can change internal HR is not just in the boring backend operations. Now it's like actually the value that uh, a person can get. Um, I think more broadly, um, it will change every single discipline in the in the way I just explained for HR. And that's just one use case, right? There's so many use cases out there um, that I think people are going to have to start figuring out um, how they adapt their work life, how they adapt their ways of working. I'm, you know, I think... I'm 100% convinced we will be able to do more with less. The same, the same work that we do today. However, like just when the calculator came out, people who were doing addition and subtraction manually didn't just fall off the workforce. They figured out other things to do. Like humans as a species, we will figure out what is the next thing we can do with this power. It's going to change the ways of working. It's going to change how I think the organ the definition of organizational design is going to be rewritten in terms of context. Like one school of thought is you don't need any back office functions. You just need a business partner who can basically get resources. Like one of the bots, you tell it which country or city you are, and it'll tell you employment law for that country. Like you don't even need to talk to a lawyer, right? Um, so so there it's going to change internally how HR operates, to your point. Recruiting actually has been ahead of this game, right? There's been a lot of AI interview intelligence in recruiting for a few years now. Um, but I think it's going to change the way we can automate, the way we can partner. And then on the external front, it's going to change how every organization, every function within an organization adapts to it. And I think the power for me is like to the same point we opened the podcast with 10 years ago or 12 years ago, whatever it was when I moved to HR was to help, um, you know, drive and be at the forefront of how ways are working and how we are connected to the business. That is going to change. Q, how, how fast do you think that we'll adopt that? Yeah, I think, you know, what I'm talking about is probably like, I don't know if I have to just throw a swag, probably two to five years, somewhere on that horizon. It's not going to be overnight, but I think... And the reason I started this people GPT community was I think HR in general or the people function um, are not in their comfort zone when they're trying to play with technology, right? Like this is so easy to do. Like it, it is crazy how conversational it is to do something that I want to try and make sure that we don't get left behind in the people function. We are kind of leading and testing it because if we do that, then we can actually help the rest of the organization. And then we don't even got ourselves out of a discipline. I, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like HR leaders are being left behind, but it's by their own doing. They're a little scared to just like get in there and play with the tech. And so, you know, my take to people and my advice is just that you have to become AI native because if you don't, someone else will. And they will, it's not tech will replace you. It's another human that knows the tech that's going to replace you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think to the, to that point, what I refer to AI in this context, I'm using the word just because I haven't thought of a better one. I call it combined intelligence because I do think a human in the loop will be needed. Like even in the example I put out on the job crafting, like at some point you got to do a sanity check on the salary. Like, is it right? Does it feel right? Does the job description feel right? Or you need to tweak it. So it's not like, I mean, maybe for some automations, sure. Like even that humans hate doing, you can automate because it's like create a job wreck and work day. There's nothing exciting about that um, to go in and do that. But there will be humans in the loop. Um, and the question is, will it be you or will it be someone else that's learned that 
ability to use it. Um, and then, you know, this is just from GPT-3, 3.5 to 4, right? I read today morning GPT-5 is already in the works. Like, who knows where this is going to go? But I will say I'll, I'll wrap this uh, topic because I could otherwise go on for hours and, and, and nights probably with it. But there is a dark side to it too, right? So we do have to be cognizant on, you know, what is, uh, you know, I'm still kind of confused on like, what is the IP and, and you know, where is the IP coming from? Where is it there? There's a dark side like... Nolan, I could build a GPT called Nolan GPT and say answer in a very harsh tone and be a jackass and and take content from Kelly and <laughs> please you know, don't put build it all a Nolan that. chat GPT. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. But like my point is like that that yes. is the dark side. You don't know what's gonna happen. So we have to be and again HR can be at the forefront of figuring out how to responsibly yeah. use this in a workplace because yeah. it'll get fallen on well, us. Who's gonna figure it Q, out? I know who's uh, gonna be my personal well. tutor when five comes out. You are gonna be my personal tutor. Um so just transition <laughs> to our segment to wrap up here. Uh we call it talent rules. Uh two quick rapid fire questions for you. Um first is your favorite yeah. interview question that gets you a really good mm-hmm. signal on candidates. Yep. My first one is actually, I think Molly said it. So I'm going to give you another one, which is tell me your story, which is that, that's always my go-to. Cause sometimes like I start answering that with where I was born and how I went to boarding school. So it's like, it, you can see why people take it either. They just talk about their work accomplishments or themselves as a person. So I will give you another one. Cause I heard Molly's episode and I think she said that the other one I try to use is tell me your superpower. Just, tell me what it is. And sometimes the candidate will talk about like, you know, I could say like, oh, I launched the Airbnb live and work in anywhere program, which is okay, cool. But what I'm really looking for is like, I love a challenge. Um, and I can bring, I can bring um, ideas into reality, even if it means killing myself, or I'm super calm in crazy situations. Like, that's what I'm looking for. So for me, it's like, tell me a superpower. Or uh, the first one is tell me a story, and let them take it however they want it. And then tell me a superpower. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Um, second one is who has been your best hire and why? That's a tough one. I would say one of my biggest, uh, I would say a few of my, I'm not going to take names, but I would say like few of my uh, best hires in HR have been from outside HR. Um, and when I, for example, when I was building people ops um, teams, I would hire people from customer support and customer success. And they were always like, a great fit because they would try to understand um, in the service delivery mechanism of HR. So I, I, I'm not, I don't want to take names because there's too many or I just don't want to do that. But um, I would say hiring people in people ops from different functions, especially like marketing or customer support um, have been my most successful. Because those people know the business. Exactly. They know the business. They know how to relate. Yeah. It's really, why do you think, why do you think that, that's a, been a pattern versus people with an HR background? I mean, I think people with an HR background have been successful in kind of like if I want a comp person, then it's a comp person. I think it's they've been successful pr- basically for what you said, right? They have that lens of empathizing and understanding context and the business. And honestly, that is the job of a people profession. I think, you know, even like, I have this whole saga about like compensation analysts too, like the compensation as a function is there to overcomplicate things Um, because you can simplify a lot of that. But if you hire people to do that, I'm not saying that's not a good profession. I'm not trying to buy, you know, say uh, get out of it. But to me, it's like you get what you ask for. And sometimes when you 
don't know, you know, um, you're asking for something different, it, it surprises you. Awesome. Q. Any, anything going into 2024 that you think the audience should be aware of, or what are you expecting going into next year? I would hope the market changes next year, but we don't know. I don't think it's in the first half, maybe in the second half. So continuing to be disciplined, the, the days of like, just spend at any cost and just do whatever to, to make folks happy. Like, I think people, they will almost be forced to connect to the business because otherwise you're not going to be, you're not going to sustain it. So I hope that trend continues and hopefully it's an acceleration of the profession in totality. Amen. Q Hermani, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much, Q. Yep. Thanks, guys. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.